Would you take your Bibles and turn to 1 Timothy? We'll be looking at chapter 4, verses 6 to 10 this morning. 1 Timothy 4, verses 6 to 10. Listen to these words of Scripture. Paul writes, If you point out these things to the brothers, you will be a good minister of Christ Jesus, brought up in the truths of the faith and of the good teaching that you have followed. Have nothing to do with godless myths and old wives' tales, but rather train yourself to be godly. For physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. This is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. And for this we labor and strive, that we have put our hope in the living God, who is the Savior of all men, and especially of those who believe. Shall we pray? Father, thank you for your word. I pray that it is a delight to all of us. It is a joy to be able to study it, to think that you have written down these things for our instruction and benefit that we might know you and know how to live and know how the church is to exist and conduct itself in this world. So, Father, teach us today from your scripture and show us what it is that we need to do that we might walk with you in holiness and truth. We pray this in your name. Amen. About 12 years ago, I heard John Piper speaking at a conference to pastors And he was talking about the importance of maintaining our health and our energy level as we grow older in ministry. At that time, he had just turned 50, and he was sharing in his own life some of those changes that take place in each decade as you move along. And he was saying, you know, I can't do at 50 what I did at 40. My tank runs down a little bit more quickly, and it doesn't fill up quite so fast on the other end if I push too hard. And he talked about needing to take care of this temple that we have been given, our body, so that we might be useful in our service to God and maintain our health and energy in that way. And partly as a result of that and other things that God had been doing in my life, I know Gail and I started to be more disciplined in our physical exercise. And we did it for personal reasons just like that, for health and energy reasons. We did it because we want to be useful to the Master for as long as He keeps us around. And also, Lord willing, we'd like to be able to hike one day with our grandchildren. Uh, We enjoy state parks and national parks and things like that, and we'd like to be able to get out there with them. Of course, we actually would need grandchildren to be able to do that, but we can't control everything, can we, in this? And so that's in the Lord's timing. But, you know, to reach that kind of goal, you have to have a plan. I mean, if you want to stay in physical shape or good health, you have to have a plan to work at that. And, you know... If any of you are doing that, and I know many of you are, uh, you know that it's not always fun to get out and exercise. There are certain days when you feel like, boy, I'm just tired. I think I'd rather take a nap than go for a run or a walk or do those things. It takes a plan and it takes discipline to stay with it. But if you are in that kind of program, you know the benefits that it brings and that it does feel good when you have continued your exercise program. Well, the same thing is true spiritually, and this is an interesting passage we're going to look at today because Paul does tell us that physical discipline is good, but he says, I want to talk to you about something that's even better, and that's godliness. And I want you to work at that in your life. I want you to train yourself to be godly. Because godliness has promise for both this present life and for the life to come. 
In other words, physical discipline has some benefit in this life. Yes, that's true. But godliness has benefit not only for today in this life, but it will carry over in the life to come. It's a word that he gives to a pastor like Timothy. But it is a word that he gives to all of us that we should all work at this in our life. And he uses this athletic metaphor of training uh, to create an image or an idea of what this is like. The word that he uses there for train, or some of your Bibles may say discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness, it's the word gymnazi. We get our English word gymnasium from it. Gymnazi. And it actually has a root word, gymnas, that meant to be naked. And it was a reference in those days when athletes would strip off of their, their outer clothes in order to be better able to compete. Be like somebody in track today when they take off their warm-ups before they start their race. You know, they don't run with their warm-ups on. They lay those things around because they are stripping down so that they can run the race as fast as they can. And here's the main point of this message. Just as an athlete disciplines himself to be the best he can be, so we as Christians should train ourselves to be godly. Just like an athlete does it, to win a prize in his event or in the race that he is running, we as Christians should discipline ourselves for the purpose of godliness. And I want to call attention to the word yourself there. He says, train yourself to be godly. It is a personal choice that you must make. Nobody else can choose this for you. Others can help you along the way in your journey as you walk with God to be more godly, just like a coach can help an athlete. But the athlete really needs to make the choice. Is he going to develop his gifts? Is he going to pay the price, if you will? Is he going to work at being better in his event or sport, whatever that may be? In the same way, I can be like a coach to you spiritually. I can encourage you. I can tell you what you should do. I can walk that journey along with you, but I can't run the race for you. Each one of us has to make that choice to train ourselves to be godly. So how do we do that? What does that look like? Well, it was interesting to me as I study this passage of Scripture that it really lays out and it really comes down to diet and exercise, if you will, in the area of godliness. And that's an easy way to remember this. If we are going to train ourselves to be godly, we need a godly diet. And he talks about that in verses 6 and 7. And specifically, he talks about the importance of feeding ourselves on the Word that we need to be continually nourished by the truth of God's Word. He said to Timothy, if you point these things out to the brothers, like in their church, in their worship service, you will be a good minister of Christ Jesus, brought up in the truths of the faith and of the good teaching that you have followed. Timothy had been brought up in the truths of the faith. He had learned the scriptures from his mother and his grandmother who were examples to him and now from Paul as he had traveled with Paul and Paul had discipled him or mentored him. The word brought up means literally to be nourished. It's like eating a good meal that nourishes and gives us strength. And the present tense of this action suggests that it is a daily routine 
that this idea of being nourished by the Word of God was something that was happening to him on a daily basis, and it should be. We need to be in the Word. We need to have that daily quiet time. We need to be studying the Scriptures so that the Word of God is feeding our soul. That's why we come to church, and hopefully the things that are shared week after week encourage you and feed your soul spiritually. Because we will not live a godly Christian life apart from a consistent feeding on God's Word. There's no other way. There's no other plan. We will not grow in godliness unless we know what God has said in His Word. And so we need to be a people of the book who love the Word and who delight in it. In the same way, you can think of an athlete. An athlete will not get very far if he doesn't eat well. And for some that's a problem because they've become accustomed to eating junk food all the time. I remember a friend of mine who was a pretty good basketball player uh, when, when he was in college. Uh, you know, he'd go out for these snacks at night and there was this restaurant nearby that made these great cinnamon rolls. They were about the size of a dinner plate. And I remember going out for him one night with a kind of a late night snack and he ordered a malt, an order of french fries, and a cinnamon roll. <laughs> Not exactly a well-balanced meal, is it? You know, it's not kind of the best diet to have. And you can get away with some of those things when you're young for a time, but it's not going to help you very much in the long run, is it? You need to eat well. You need to eat good food if you are to be strong as an athlete. The Navigator's Ministry uses uh, five fingers on our hand to kind of illustrate what we need to do when it comes to God's Word, and they tell us that we need to hear God's Word. That's things like biblical preaching and teaching. My job here, in a sense, is to feed you, is to lay out God's Word so that you can enjoy it and eat it. You know, when you think about that over the years, it's just like with the meals that I have eaten physically over the years... I don't remember everything that I've eaten in that time. There are certain meals that may stand out or certain meals that I really enjoy, but I wouldn't be where I am today if I hadn't eaten all of them. And in the same way, when it comes to messages that we hear, or sometimes when there is a message that really strikes home, it was like today was just for you. And this was what you needed here at this moment, and that'll stick in your mind. I, I remember talks that I have heard as many as 20 or 25 years ago, and I still remember them because of the impression they made on my life at the right time. But I don't remember all the messages that I have heard over the years, but they were all important in helping to shape my faith and to grow in my relationship with God. And we need to be a people who read God's Word. That idea of a daily quiet time comes from that, that we're in the book and we're reading and listening to God. And then we need to study the Scriptures. Reading gives us breath, but study gives us depth. If you consider, what's the difference between a strong cup of tea and a weak cup of tea? I mean, both have the same ingredients. You know, they both are tea and some hot water. But what makes the difference is the amount of time that the tea is left in the water. The longer the tea is left in the water, the stronger the tea becomes. The more time we spend in God's Word, the stronger we become. And it becomes more and more a part of our life. We need to memorize the Scripture. It's where we hide it in our heart or carry it with us. And we need to meditate on God's Word. That's the idea of chewing on it, thinking about it through the day, 
thinking of how it applies to our life, our marriage, our children, our family situations, the decisions we make, or issues of morality, or issues about our world. And we take God's Word and then we apply it. And that leads to the next point. That we need to follow what we have learned. If you look at verse 6 again, Paul commends Timothy because not only was he brought up in the truths of the faith, but he had followed the good teaching that he had heard. He was a young man who heard God's word and put it into practice in his life. And Paul recognized that in Timothy. He saw in Timothy one who was faithful. And so Paul placed him in positions of responsibility like being the pastor of this church and he had confidence in what God was doing in his life and he had confidence in Timothy that he was an obedient young man who would faithfully follow God. That word follow means something significant in the scripture. It's used many times to describe the relationship that we are to have with Christ as a disciple. If you were to study Mark's Gospel, for example, you would see that that word follow is virtually synonymous with being a disciple. Jesus called those men. He said, come and follow me. Come and be a part of my ministry. See what I do and then learn from me and put it into practice in your life. A disciple is a follower. He doesn't just hear the Scriptures. He obeys them. He puts them into practice and the things that he does. You know, it's similar to us. We can know the rules of the road, but we need to put them into practice when we drive. We can know the benefits of a good, healthy diet or exercise, but we need to put that into practice in our life if it's going to make any difference. And the same thing, we can know how we are to grow spiritually in our relationship with God, but we've got to do it if it's going to make a difference in our relationship. Look at Luke 6, verses 46 to 49, and consider these words. Jesus said, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? I will show you what he is like who comes to me and hears my words and puts them into practice. He's like a man building a house who dug down deep and laid the foundation on a rock. And when a flood came and the torrent struck that house, it could not shake it because it was well built. But the one who hears my words and does not put them into practice is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. And the moment the torrent struck that house, it collapsed, and its destruction was complete. The difference is our obedience, our willingness to put into practice what God has said. And then thirdly, we need to avoid what Paul calls foolish talk here. This would be the junk food, if you will. The things that we need to stay away from and avoid. He calls them old wives' tales here. Godless myths. Things that people were talking about that were pure speculation, that were ungodly, or can even at times be other things like gossip or worse. And he confronted that and said, Timothy, don't spend your time in that kind of idle, foolish speculation. Now, sometimes, unfortunately, we need to study the cults in order to be able to refute what they say. Last year, I did a brief series related to the Da Vinci Code because a book came out that was controversial, that was upsetting some people in terms of what it was saying, but you know what? It was all falsehood. 
And it was all done just to sell a book, basically. The same thing is happening again this year. Uh, there's a book called The Jesus Tomb. You know, and some man claims that he's discovered the bones of Jesus and the bones of Mary and Joseph. And then some guy, Matthew, ended up in this family tomb. And I don't know, you know, and he goes through this and he wants to pretend like this is this big deal that we've found the bones of Jesus. No, we haven't. It's all a myth and it's all designed just to establish, um, you know, in order for him to try and sell a book and make some money on this. But there's no evidence behind it. In fact, when you hear, if you've listened at all to many of the scholars, Biblical Archaeology Review has talked about this and other publications also, and they just talked about how bogus the whole thing is. That the uh, things that he has presented in his argument, why he thinks this is the body of Jesus, just do not fit. For one thing, if Jesus was buried in a family tomb, in that way it would have been in Nazareth, his hometown, and not in Jerusalem. But there are so many other things that the scriptures bear evidence to that Jesus not only was laid in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea, but he rose from the dead. And he was seen by those who were witnesses, as many as 500 at one time. There are things that will come along, like this book, that will try to upset the faith of some or try to lead unbelievers astray or encourage them not to believe in Jesus. And they need to be confronted. But do you know that the best way to refute false doctrine is always a positive presentation of the Christian truth? The best way to deal with error is to live a godly life and to live out your faith and to teach the truth of Scripture. If somebody's going to study and understand, say, counterfeit currency, what do they study? They study the real thing so that they might recognize the error. And that's exactly what we need to do. We need to know the Scriptures well so that when things come up that are questionable, we can easily refute them. You know, in addition to knowing the Scriptures, I want to encourage you to read good Christian books. Read good Christian literature. And there are many that we can choose from, from the classics that have been out there for many years, for centuries, and have blessed God's people, as well as some current books that are also excellent. William Law said this about reading. He said, Reading in wise and virtuous subjects is next to the Bible and prayer, the best improvement of our hearts. It enlightens us, it calms us, it collects our thoughts and prompts us to better efforts. And Oswald Sanders said this, The person who desires to grow spiritually and intellectually will be constantly at his books. There's an interesting passage in 2 Timothy 4, verse 13, where Paul is near the end of his life and he knows that. He's in prison in Rome, doesn't know what's going to happen, but it's probably going to end in death. And what does he do? He writes to Timothy and he says, Bring me my parchments. Bring me my books. Bring me my books. Now here's a guy at the end of his life. He is a writer of Scripture, if he will. He doesn't just know the Scripture well, and he hasn't just been a student of the Scripture all his life, but, but he's written it. God's used him in that way. And he's saying, bring me my books. Bring me my books. I want to study. Do you have that kind of hunger to know God's Word and to learn from men and women of God who have grown deep in their faith and whose writings can be a tremendous blessing to you? 
One of the questions that I ask people who I respect in ministry is I ask them, what are the best books you have read? What's your top five in terms of what has influenced you or shaped you in your relationship with God? And I know it's hard sometimes to pick five. I have some that are personal favorites for me that early on in my Christian life helped to shape me. One of those was a book by A.W. Tozer, The Knowledge of the Holy. Great book on the character of God. Or Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. Powerful arguments for the Christian faith. I Devoured Evidence that Demands a Verdict by Josh McDowell. Just bolstered my faith. It's not written, as you know, as a novel. It's just written with these quotes and evidence and resource and arguments on different areas of the Christian faith. I love Robert Coleman's Master Plan of Evangelism. Tremendous challenge to the Great Commission and to disciple others as Jesus discipled the Twelve. Or books like Spiritual Leadership by Oswald Sanders, the best book on leadership I've ever read. It is just a tremendous resource. And it was interesting, a few years ago I saw Chuck Colson also put that at the top of the book when he did his endorsement, the best book on leadership he's ever read. And there are many like that. There are classics like Pilgrim's Progress by John Bunyan or Augustine's Confessions. There's a reason that some of these books are classics because they have ministered to believers through the centuries. Christianity Today this last year came out with their top 50 books of the last century. And I took a look at that list, wanted to see how many of those I had read over the years. And many of them I had read and had shaped my faith in Jesus Christ. Next to the Bible and prayer, the reading of good Christian literature can be a powerful work in our life. And I I thank God for the women that are involved in our library ministry too and for the resources that are available there that can help you to grow. Well, let's look at the second half of this message. That we not only need to be feeding our mind, but we need godly exercise and training. There is a sense in which we need to step into God's gym and begin our workout. And we need to do this every day of our life. And it begins by valuing godliness above other things. And we see that in verse 8. Again, when he says, Have nothing to do with godless myths and old wives' tales. Instead, train yourself to be godly. For physical training is of some value, but godliness is value for all things. He's not dissing physical discipline or training. In other passages of Scripture, he talks about how our body is a temple of the Holy Spirit and we need to take care of it. But he's saying of even greater importance and value is godliness. It holds value for all things, which means it holds value for all areas of life, And it has value for both the present and the future. What we do now in this life does carry over into heaven. It matters. In terms of the spiritual fruit that we have borne, or the rewards that will be given, or the service opportunities that we will have in heaven. It matters how we live in this life. It makes a difference. And God will reward those who have been faithful to Him. And there are many people who say things like, well, you know, I don't, I don't really have time for church. It's hard for me to get up on Sunday morning. Or I can't, you know, that Bible study, well, i got so many other things going on, and i got this and that activity, or this hobby, or this interest, and all those things. And you know what I say to that? I say we always find time for what we really value and what we really enjoy. We'll find time for those things that are important and that we enjoy in our life. 
And if we have time for, uh, you know, all these other hobbies and special interests, but we don't have time to work in our faith and grow in our relationship with God, then something's out of balance. Jesus said, seek ye first the kingdom of God, and all these other things will be added to you. Jesus comes first. And we need to work at our faith. And that's the second point here under this heading, that we must strive to be godly. When you look at how Paul describes it, in verses 9 and 10 he says, This is a trustworthy saying. And he is referring back to verse 8, that godliness has value for all things. You can count on this. You can trust it. You can build your life on it. It deserves full acceptance. And for this, we labor and strive. Now, he uses two words here, laboring and strive, that suggest this is a workout. This is not always easy. This isn't a piece of cake to walk with God in an ungodly world. There are temptations, there are challenges, there are things that pull at our time and energy, and it takes being intentional about it. But it has value for all things. The word labor suggests that it is hard work and there's toil involved. The word strive is the word agonize, literally in Greek, and it referred to an athletic competition. Have you ever watched wrestlers, you know, get together and they're wrestling in that match? Man, they're laying it all out there on the mat. They're giving everything that they can. They are agonizing is the word that's used in Greek to describe wrestlers in competition. I played basketball as a sport, but in high school I used to go watch the wrestlers. You know, it was kind of fun to do that. And I, I would sit near the back of the stands because one of the things I also enjoyed is, have you ever watched the moms of wrestlers? You know, the moms are there in the stand and they're trying to get the pin and they're doing the, you know, the workout too. And it's really kind of humorous to see sometimes the parents get so involved in it. And uh, you can see that they're agonizing along with the athlete. Well, that's what the scripture is talking about. Paul is saying we work at our faith. He used the same words in Colossians 1, 28 and 29. When he said, we proclaim him admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom that we may present every man complete in Christ. And for this purpose also I labor, striving according to his power which mightily works in me. It's Paul's goal for ministry is to see everyone presented complete in Christ. It's not just to grow in godliness himself, but it's to see others also grow in Christ-likeness. You know, those words for me are really the focus of my ministry as well. A number of years ago, Gail calligraphied them, and I have them on the wall in my office. Because that's what I want to do too. I want to lift up Jesus Christ, and I want to admonish you, and I want to teach you, so that we all might become complete in Christ. And I want to give it my best effort. I want to labor and strive for these things too because this is what God has called me to do. He's called each of us to grow in godliness. And do you desire to be godly like Paul? And do you strive for it with all your might? Is it something you value and you work at? Well, then thirdly, we need a goal. Paul said that we have fixed our hope on the living God, who is the Savior of all men, and especially of those who believe. When he talks about this passage, there's a number of questions that have often come up. What does it mean when he says that he is the Savior of all men? 
You know, and some have wrongly taken this and wanted to say, well, see, it teaches a universalism that everybody's going to be saved. No, that's not what this passage is saying. It is only those who believe in Christ who will be saved. So in what sense is he the Savior of all men? Well, potentially, he is the Savior of all men, but actually he's the Savior of those who believe. But also temporally. In this world, even unbelievers may experience his temporal blessings. He causes the sun and the rain to shine and to fall on the unrighteous and the righteous alike. He gives good gifts to all men. But it is those who are believers who experience his blessings, both now temporally and also will experience them eternally, forever. We get both. And that is a tremendous privilege. He is our hope and our salvation. I want to share with you an example of a man who lived a pretty remarkable life. When you think of someone who was busy, somebody who had great demands on his time and work, uh, probably no one was busier than this man was. Uh, Kent Hughes tells the story of Lieutenant General William K. Harrison. He was the most decorated soldier in the 30th Infantry Division in World War II. His division was rated the number one infantry division by General Eisenhower. General Harrison was the first American to enter Belgium during that war, and he did that at the head of the Allied forces. During the war, he received every decoration for valor except the Congressional Medal of Honor. He was honored with the Distinguished Service Cross, the Silver Star, the Bronze Star for Valor, and the Purple Heart. He was one of the few generals to be wounded in action. When the Korean War began, he served as Chief of Staff in the United Nations Command. President Eisenhower asked him to lead the long and tedious negotiations to end the war. He was a soldier's soldier who led a busy, kinetic life, but he was also an amazing man of the word. When he was a cadet at West Point, he made a decision that he would read through the scriptures, the Old Testament once and the New Testament four times every year. And he continued that practice throughout his life, even in those years during the war. He would catch up on his Bible reading in those days when he had a two- or three-day respite. He continued that until he was 90 years of age and his eyesight was so dim that he could no longer read the Scripture. But by that time, he had read through the Old Testament 70 times and the New Testament 280 times. And he didn't just read it, he lived it. He put it into practice in his life. God used him for 18 years to lead the officer's Christian fellowship. He was a man of the word and a man of prayer. And he was an example to others. His life tells us that it is possible for us to do these things even when we are busy. If he could do it, even the busiest of people can find time to spend with God in the word and prayer and to be growing in a relationship with him. And if we will do that, God will use our life. And we will touch others, and we will grow in our own walk with Him. And God's Word will become such a part of our life that we will, like John Bunyan used to say, our blood will be bibline. The Word of God will be flowing through us. So do you value godliness? What are you pursuing? What are you striving for? Is your desire to be godly? Then work at your faith. 
Train yourself to be godly by doing these six things, by being constantly or consistently nourished in the truth of God's Word, by following the things that you have learned. It is by avoiding foolish talk or staying away from the junk food, by valuing godliness above other things, by striving to be godly, and by fixing your hope on the living God. Amen. Let's pray. Father, as we look at the Scripture, sometimes it just speaks so clearly, so plainly, that we know the right thing to do. We just need to do it. And I pray, Father, that you would help us at this, to grow in Christ-likeness, to grow in our love for you and our love for your Word and to take the time that we need. And to be patient, because there are times when we miss and we struggle and we fall, but to get up again and to persevere. Would you draw us near to yourself? And help us to do these things, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.